I'm just like waiting for someone to be like, hey, we want to interview you for this grad program, but I'm slightly losing my mind. But I have therapy tomorrow. And so maybe she'll be able to like, you know, fix me. <laughs> yes, because that is the role of therapists. Just, they fix all your problems. Just fix did, me, did you know? please. That's yeah. what I do. Just fix problems all day, left and right. Just kidding. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much been the bulk of my life. Um, plus, like, watching insane amounts of, like, Fear Factor and American Ninja Warrior. <laughs> you haven't asked if I... I think it was the Fear Factor. He was like, what? You never watched Fear Factor when you were growing up? And I'm like, no, that seems disgusting. Oh, it um, is. <laughs> I am scarred from whatever Mary-Kate and Ashley movie it was where they were, like, on... Maybe it was Mary-Kate and Ashley? They were, like, on a fake kind of Fear Factor episode and, like, someone ate a spider or something. No, I don't remember. Am I just making this up in my head? Maybe. I didn't see all Mary-Kate and Ashley movies, but I don't... I, I don't know. I don't remember that. I thought, like, it was one when they were, like, older. Like, teen- more teenagers. You, like, the one where they go... Like to Australia in like witness protection, maybe. I feel like Australia has spiders. So. I'm looking it up. <laughs> da, 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 da. Okay, yes, they were on a movie called The Challenge. Oh, literally like a fake <laughs> <laughs> survive part survivor part fear factor is what IMBD says. No, I've okay, never... I'm glad glad I didn't make that up in my head, but that traumatized me. The scene where someone, like, ate something really gross and then, like, threw up. Like, oh, uh, Yeah, no, it's disgusting. Like, half the time I'm just staring at my husband watching the TV show because <laughs> I'm just, like, taking in his reaction and that's enough for me. Um, yeah, it's super gross. I especially like to put it on when I'm working because it keeps me from looking at the TV <laughs> <laughs> like distracting myself so i'm like oh Fair. i need to write so let me put the character on um but yeah no it's so gross and I, I also you know i'm not i'm not you know and sorry to anyone listening if you are this way but i'm not like a huge like animal like activist and things like that but i find <laughs> sorry um i find the like I don't know. I just feel like how many animals were harmed in the production of this? Yeah, don't they eat a bunch of, like, animals live? Well, they eat, like, live bugs and stuff. And I'm like, I get that they're bugs and, like, we squish them. But it also seems a little cruel and weird. Um, But then just, like, eating all sorts of random parts of the animal. And I'm like, where did you get this? Like, did you kill these animals just for their testicles? Like... (laughs) (laughs) See, that's why I feel watching Chopped sometimes. They just come up with, like, the most obscure parts yeah. of the animals. They're like, here's a goat head. <laughs> yeah. Do what you want with it. And I'm like, can they just have a chop that's, like, just vegetarian? 
<laughs> I do not that care for sweetbreads. Like, what is up with that? I do I think like that would those. be a good challenge. Make it like either all veg, vegetarian or vegan. Um, I they think have that some, be... but not often enough. Oh, really? I feel like, yeah, I've seen them do like, I don't know, how many episodes do they have? There's like literally Thousands. 50 seasons or something. <laughs> yeah. um, and I can recall... Out of all of the episodes I've seen, maybe like one or two all vegetarian ones, oh, okay. or maybe all vegan ones. I don't yeah. know. Very interesting. I, I demand representation. <laughs> yeah, I um, I whenever I watch Chopped, I'm always like, I could do this better than them. Clearly, they need to be making blah blah blah. Um, so it does make me a little too ant, but I do love oh Chopped. Oh my god, you're just like Evan the whole time. He's like, well, clearly they should just do this or this. And like, I'm why like, aren't you sautéing that? Like, what? What are you doing? <laughs> Although, yes, I do. I'm like, oh, I can't believe they're trying to make risotto. Like, in 30 <laughs> minutes, please. Have I yeah. ever made risotto in my life? No. Exactly. What's What's going on in, in yours? Three words. Mega cat tree. Oh, yeah. Super (laughs) cool. So we got Gary's Christmas present early. So she has this cat tree that's like, it used to be like a cream color and it's now pretty much black. It is just so covered in cat hair and it is destroyed. Like she has, it has like little posts that she can like Mm -hmm. claw and she has ripped it to shreds. Like, I don't know how it's still in one piece. Um, so we decided to get her an even, we decided, I decided to get her an even bigger cat tree for Christmas. Um, and it's huge. It's like taller than I am. Um, so I put it together yesterday. I put it together wrong by myself and then Evan fixed it. (laughs) Yay, Um, Evan. Yeah. Although here's what's happening now that is actually, I think like an emotional problem that I'm having is that she is still going up her old cat tree and like scratching on it and is not as interested in the new one. So now I'm like heartbroken because I don't want to throw the old one away because she loves it and she's just like rubbing her face all over it and scratching it all up. And maybe you should hide it for a while until she has like warmed up to the new one. I mean, she's like been on the new one. She's like walked up and down <laughs> she it. She doesn't love it yet. There's just a lot of different components to the new mm-hmm. one, we'll say, of, like, there's just a lot more stuff going on. So, yeah, I think she just needs some time. And, like, maybe we just need to get rid of the older one altogether so yeah. that she's forced to to be on the the new one. But I'm just like, oh, my God, is she going to be mad at me for getting rid of her cat tree? She loves it so much. I have um, a feeling she'll be fine. <laughs> okay listen um we gave her so we gave her salmon on thanksgiving because i was like Mm. i want my cat to be able to celebrate with me um and so obviously she didn't eat a whole can in one sitting so it lasted for about a week and how long ago was thanksgiving like a while ago like a couple she still every morning walks in the kitchen and starts meowing and like looking at the ground where like the salmon plate (laughs) was and looks back at me demanding salmon Oh my god! And I feel terrible because we don't have any. I'm like Gary. We literally don't have any salmon for you. Like, but she still every time we're in the kitchen, or if she hears like the container that I kept it in, if I like open a container that sounds the same, she like runs in there and like looks all around. And I'm just like, oh my god, <laughs> you need to to chill out. Like, 
this was a, a one-time thing, but now it's probably going to have to be an all-the-time thing because she's just so, like, pestering and so demanding. <laughs> Meanwhile, my dog can't remember what happened five minutes ago. So, um, yeah, I, I've never considered giving him a gift or anything. What? You don't I'm give like, your dog gifts? I mean... Like, every so often when I go buy him, like, pet food, I'm like, oh, let me get this toy. Um, But, I mean, I don't consider it a gift. I'm just like, here's a thing to keep you busy. Um, But, yeah, never a thanks. He's not a part of our Thanksgiving meal. Um, If he's lucky, something might fall and he can have it. Um, And I've never considered getting him a Christmas gift. What would he do with it? He doesn't know. Uh, my dogs at home, they have their own stockings, and my cat has her own stocking, and they get gifts from Santa in their stockings every year. Um, <laughs> I guess I'm, you know, I, I'm a frugal Fran, you know, I, I suppose I, I, I don't wish to, you know, what I would call waste uh, money on my dog i already you know house and feed him at no cost to him um he gets all the pets that he wants again at no cost to him so i I just feel like he has a really good life he wants wants for nothing (laughs) fair enough fair enough Um, that's too funny maybe we spoil no our dogs are definitely spoiled my little sister sends pictures katie of um she has like her own bed obviously at home but i we say that it's peyton's bed because the dog is just constantly mm-hmm. laying on it just like she'll literally be on the bed like with her head on a pillow like wrapped up in a blanket like a human being it's <laughs> so funny it's I, so cute we never allowed him on the bed and so like during the summer Jarrell went away and um I was like, oh, I'm lonely. Like, let's go get Ollie groomed and then he can come lay on the bed um, with me. Um, with me. And he literally just sat up on this uncomfortable and, like, jumped off and, like, went back to, like, the floor. Like, just a blanket on the floor. Um, he, he, like, just didn't know what to do on the bed. <laughs> but you let him on the couch the other day. I did. And did he, he like that? He was so excited like i've never seen him so happy um but yeah that's not happening again (laughs) poor ollie he's a husky like he sheds so much i'm like what am i i'm gonna like have to you know get rid of the couch if i keep letting him on it (laughs) oh gosh my one friend from grad school just got a husky puppy and Mm -hmm. i wanted to text you and be like should i tell her what it's gonna be like (laughs) should i let her know that this is like (laughs) your dog is gonna be like literally insane (laughs) just like eat everything yeah i've never met a dog with as much personality as like ollie i mean i've met other huskies that i also feel like has have a lot of personality but it's also just like so weird i can't decipher why he does things like when he was a puppy i'd like search and search our apartment i'm like where is this dog and he's like behind the refrigerator i'm like how'd you get there and like why (laughs) multiple times on so many occasions and so i i do think that it that a little bit of it is or a good portion of it is just ollie (laughs) 
Like, this is just how yeah. he is. But... It's just specific to, like, his personality. Yeah. How but... old is he now? Um, I guess five. Five. Okay, so he's, like, still pretty young. No, like... he's in, what, in human years? What is he, 90? <laughs> uh... No, 40. Like in his 30s, 40s? No. 30s? 45, 45? 45, okay. Don't check yeah. me on that math. Um, He's a grown but man. No, I feel, like, I feel like dogs don't start to calm down. Like uh, our dog Peyton, she's an Australian Shepherd mix. So she um, had a lot of energy, but, mm-hmm. you know, similar to a husky, but um, was in a much smaller package, um, <laughs> like medium-sized dog. Uh she would literally just like run around the house in circles though. Mm-hmm. But what you were saying made me think of a story for Peyton. Oh my God. It was so funny. So when we had gotten her and she was a puppy, there was one day where it was like raining outside and like super thunderstorm, like super terrible. Um, and we like couldn't find Peyton and we we're mm-hmm. like, Oh my God, what happened to the puppy? Like how, no one opened the door. How, how would she have gotten out? We like looked all over the house. We we're calling her name. So my dad gets in the car and is like driving around the neighborhood, yelling for Peyton, um, <laughs> like outside. We're all freak. My mom's like at work. So we're all freaking out. And then I like walk into my room and I've, I had a trundle bed because my little sister and I shared a room at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I see like a little tail sticking out of the trundle bed <laughs> and I like pulled it open and she was just She's laying just... under there. Just cash, having a good time, oh, like no. relaxing. And then there That's was so another funny. time, This oh my god, this poor dog, like she must have so much trauma from like her childhood where, yeah. um, so one time my mom was driving me to school um like i had like an early speech practice or something and so since there was a million children in our family we had like a giant minivan Mm -hmm. um so we had upgraded and got one of those minivans that has like the rows of seats yeah and like instead of the middle seat missing you just pull on like a uh like thing on the chair and it just like you know what i'm saying it like Mm -hmm. closes up um so i was sitting in the back back seat for some reason and my mom had taken the dog in the car while she was still a puppy <laughs> so like i was getting out of the back seat so i like pulled the little thing and the chair closed and like flipped up <laughs> and i got out and then my mom was like <laughs> looking around she's like where'd the dog go did you close it on the dog <laughs> And welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. Thank you.
word. Um, but yeah, uh, for every uh, review we get, we are donating a dollar to the National Center for Victims of Crime. Um, so I think once we crack 20 is when we will do our first donation. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure if there's like a minimum or whatever, but we'll say 20. So get to get to your little typings, people. Yeah. Um, let's see what else. Oh, yeah. Um, I feel like coming you picked the theme this week, which is medical crimes. Yeah. And just a disclaimer. Um, I don't think that I did. I <laughs> I don't think I I, I had a really hard happened. time. I had a really hard time with this one. Really? Um and I don't know why. Um I think it was just because I wasn't really in the mood to do like a nurse murdering their patients yeah, case. Same. Um I was just like, you know what, I'm really not feeling that this week. So I found, like, so many potential things that I wanted to look into, but, um, like, one of them came from, um, we had that giant list of of people that um, were recommended to us, and there was one woman who is a physician that Mm -hmm. killed her children and tried to to murder her husband, Um, and so I was like, oh, that's perfect for this week. But it turns out, so Anne Rule wrote a book on this lady. And I was like, you know what? I don't need to read the book. Like, it'll be fine. I'll just do the case. Like, I'll read it eventually. And then, so I got to researching, got to researching. And I was like, you know what? No, like, I really want to, like, read this book and do this case justice. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to have to wait to do that one until (laughs) I read this book. Anne Rule, um, she wrote the, oh, God, what's that book called? I don't know. She knew Ted Bundy. Um, and then she ended up being, a, like, a reporter or something, um, and now she, like, writes um, true crime novels, and, like, I think her biggest one was the one that she did about Ted Bundy, which is, like, what is it called? Uh, I remember. Is it called The Stranger Beside Me? Yes. Did you just look it up? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, that makes me feel better. I knew it was something beside me, and I was mm-hmm. like... I can't remember. Well, I did read that one, and I have another one of her books, but I was like, you know what? I Because she writes the book from the perspective that she thinks that um, Deborah didn't do it. So that's why I'm like, okay, I want to hear this out and see what she has to say. So oh, okay. uh, that will be coming soon. I called dibs. Um, <laughs> Solid. But that was my, like, really roundabout way of introducing um, our our topic this week. We're doing medical crimes. Yeah. Um, okay. So, like I said, uh, not 100% sure that my case really fits into this, but uh, I did it, so we're just going to roll with it um so terry roder and sean adams met in 2017 the two women had a lot in common after terry had retired she wanted to pursue what had previously been a hobby so in 2000 terry became a dealer at the calico hen house um and this all takes place in waterloo iowa and so the calico is a charming little antique store um, it started in a chicken coop in a woman named Skip Fell's farm. So Skip started her business in 1984 when the country was going through yet another recession. She wanted to offer a way for women to sell their crafted goods, earn some extra money at a time where money was hard to come by. 
And while she loved her business, Skip was not quite as crafty as her vendors, but she still found a way to incorporate her love of antiques into the Calico Hen House. The workers at Calico included a pet goose and some donkeys uh, who would welcome the customers and accepted payment in the form of snacks, which like, same, I, that's how I work too. Um, <laughs> so eventually the business outgrew the chicken coop and was moved to its present location on Ansboro Avenue, Avenue in the Albert Plaza. So... In 2017, Terry became the sole owner of Calico, offering a place for 50 dealers to display their antiques, vintage items, decor, gifts, crafts, you name it. Um, So Terry collects the old, the odd, and the ugly uh, pieces that might regularly be overlooked by other people. Um, so since the age of 20, Terry has spent her, spent time at, you know, garage sales, other private sales. She was the type of person who could find pieces that were forgotten or unloved and through her business, give them a second chance at being appreciated. Um, so even after Terry, I know, I love that, especially like that related to me because all of my furniture I bought off of like Facebook marketplace and I, I love that. So it really spoke to me. I was being sarcastic because I only like new things. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Stop it. I love, uh, I, like, love thrifting. You I like love dirty things. I get really. it. <laughs> okay, whatever, Natalie. Um, anyway, um, so Skip, the original owner, even stayed, um, she stayed on the team after she sold her business um, because she still really just enjoyed being a part of the Calico team that much. Um, so that brings me back to what Sean Terry had in common when they met. So Sean owned the Daisy co-signment shop in Waterloo. And while Sean owned a business, she was struggling with her finances. When she met Terry, she was quick to open up and share about the challenges in her life. Sean didn't have a car and she didn't have the money to pay for her quickly accruing medical expenses. Sean told Terry that she had wrist cancer and brain cancer. She only had a short time to live and was trying to keep her business afloat while also making arrangements for her 12-year-old son. Um, Some sources said it was her stepson, so I'm not entirely sure whether her son was her biological son, but either way, it seems like she was the sole um, caregiver to her son. Um, I'm sure she loved him just the same. uh, Hopefully. Oh, okay. uh, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, Sean always kept her wrists covered to protect them. Uh, She was worried that she would have to get her hands amputated to keep the cancer from from spreading throughout her body. Um, Terry's husband also got to know Sean. His name is David. He was especially sympathetic to her situation because he had just lost his own sister to cancer a few years earlier. Um, Terry went above and beyond just you know lending some money to sean helping to pay for her education or education medication um she also agreed to take sean to doctor's appointments uh so there was one time where she took sean to a doctor's appointment and they waited in the lobby to see sean's doctor um and waited and waited and a couple hours later sean's name was never called um a little weird uh nothing too strange you know maybe the doctor's office was really like overwhelmed or running behind or maybe sean had forgotten the time of her appointment yeah just um, a mix up 
you know, it happens. Uh, and there was another time that Sean needed $500 for a medication for her wrist cancer. And Terry gave her the money without a second thought. And then Sean came back the next day saying the medication hadn't worked. And now she needed money for another more expensive medication. Terry still agreed, you know, she didn't want any harm to come to Sean. Um, she knew that Sean was really struggling financially and she was just the type of person that would help someone who is in need. Uh, David, on the other hand, was getting a little concerned about the loans. Uh, it started off with, you know, some urgent time sensitive requests here or there, you know, like I need to, to pay this bill and I just don't have the money right now. But she just needed more and more and more money. Um, so Terry not only lent Sean money to pay for medication and things, she was also helping pay for her rent, um, her utilities for her home, and she was also chipping in to cover the cost for the consignment shop. Um, Sean assured them she would pay them back, and Terry didn't doubt her for a second. She said, I believed with all my heart she would pay me back, and she kept saying that Sean was very adamant that it's just a loan and said, I will pay you back every penny. So, you know, Terry must have been quick to trust Sean because maybe if the rules were reversed, she would never let a debt go unpaid. And Sean supposedly had thirty-two or $3.2 million in the form of annuity that would become available to her once her divorce was finalized. And the explanation for this was that it was just tied up with the F or blah, 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 IRS, there was like government red tape. She just wasn't able to get it yet, but she had this $3.2 million that she was going to get. Um, but it seemed almost too good to be true. Uh, Sean, however, was able to back up her claims. She had a document on her phone detailing all of the financial information. And this explanation seemed to be good enough for the Road family. And they had no reason not to continue trusting her. Still, Terry and David kept track of their loans. They kept a shared notebook with Sean to track every single penny that was borrowed. And this included the cash for medications, for gas, um, you know, school fees for her son. Uh, they tracked the checks to the landlords of the home and the business and payments for utilities. Um, so Sean had even agreed to sign two notarized promissory notes, um, which is, I think, a more official way of saying that she'll pay you back. Um, I don't know if you're yeah, legally Yeah, like, like an IOU. <laughs> yeah, but it like seems legal. like yeah. there might be some kind of legal binding there. Um, but so she said there was one that she signed that said, I'll pay you back $19,000. And another one that she signed for $20,000. Um, so the Roaders had growing concerns about Sean. She just kept asking for more and more money, and her medical problems were getting worse and worse. And Sean said she needed a kidney transplant. She had been scheduled for one at the hospital, um, but she was already back home from the hospital just a day after her procedure. Uh, Terry went to go visit her just to check in, make sure she was doing okay, and... Um, I guess something came up where Sean just refused to show her the scar from from after her surgery, which I don't think by itself is weird. I don't think you're inclined to show someone like proof that you had surgery or like 
mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to mess with my bandages after a surgery, but maybe it was paired with everything else that she was yeah. like, okay, that's sh- strange. What, what kind of cancer did she say she had? Wrist cancer and brain cancer. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, getting back to the scar. So Sean's daughter actually ended up sending a picture of, of the scar to Terry, you know, proof that this, this all happened. She did have the kidney transplants. Um, but still things were a little suspicious. Um, so, you know, people don't usually get discharged from the hospital after like such an intensive procedure, you know? I looked it up and it said, you know, typically after getting a kidney transplant, you would stay in the hospital for at least a few days, if not, you know, maybe a few weeks. Um, Mm -hmm. Oh, but she also said that the hospital helicopter brought her home. So maybe, maybe that was it since she had, you know, like helicopter transportation and (laughs) helicopters are often going into like residential Residential neighborhoods and just like, you know, dropping you off. You know, after you get uh, kidneys, you can, like, climb down that little ladder and they just, like, yeah. drop you on your front door. Exactly. Yeah. Happened yeah. to me, like, so, six times. Of course. <laughs> yeah. So, so what are your thoughts so far? What, what do you, <laughs> what do you think about this? Um, I, you know, I, I, I never want to victim blame. However, I do think that like maybe they should have trusted their suspicions a little bit more and also like i like i just so, feel so you wouldn't have trusted sean is what you're no, saying no i i just feel like she's not giving me a convincing story but and also again i mean you know i could very well have a cold heart but i'm not giving anyone that i'm not related to <laughs> that much money you wouldn't give um, me fifty thousand dollars natalie you, you you better come up with a really compelling case and like let me talk to your doctor. <laughs> like, what's the likelihood you're gonna survive to pay me back? Oh no! I'll get a note from my doctor, Natalie. That won't be enough. Oh my god, that's like when Katie was like, "Would you give me a kidney?" And I was like, "Yeah, absolutely." Um, she's my sister though, so. Uh... That, that was a fun episode, although I'm sure the audio on that one was, like, absolutely terrible. Um, so, they had given her, you know, all this money. Uh, the whole kidney surgery thing, that was really a last straw. Um, and they were like, yeah, you know, we're not, we're not going to give you any more money. Um, so, Sean's son... Uh, it, yeah, sorry, I, like said this earlier about him not being a biological child um but so that brings us to sean's son over time terry and david had developed a relationship with uh her son sean had told the rotors you know that she had terminal brain cancer and she was likely going to die um very soon so she had actually asked david and terry if they would be willing to care for him after she died and david was ready to welcome 
this child into his life and he began taking him to sporting events he would play video games with him you know just spent time talking with him getting to know him um he took this request very seriously and he said to the courier which is where i got you know 99 percent of my information from um that i was under the impression that we would uh have that young man in our lives for a long time so you know i i hear you saying that you know don't want to blame the victim or it seems a little bit unusual but i think you know it's easy for us to kind of look back and say like oh my god how could you have missed all these red flags um but there was a lot of you know uh, emotions tied into this and you know at this time if someone tells you that they're dying that can bring up a lot for you and you might not necessarily you might feel guilty you know asking them for clarification on certain things or um two in this case i think she very much used the foot in the door technique where it started off with some really small requests and then gradually kind of snowballed into bigger things Mm -hmm. and that you know we know from psychological principles that uh you're more likely to get someone to say yes to uh, a greater ask if you ask them to do like something small first um which is why I don't do small favors for anyone. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> this is kind of funny, but um, I think I like read somewhere. I don't know that this is actually backed by... You know, that The whole foot in the door thing is like backed by actual studies. But I like read somewhere that if you ask someone to do like a little favor for you, they're more likely to like, like you. So sometimes I'll ask people to do small favors for me just because I want them to like me. <laughs> what? I'm like, can I write a pen? best friend Sounds so weird i you know i just maybe i'm just a different breed because i'd be like this person is inconvenienced to me so much i'm just kidding how many favors did i ask you for and you would always help me and now well, you're my best friend it I, worked well i liked you first <laughs> and i like desperately needed a friend <laughs> true um no we clicked fair. it was okay fair I thought you didn't like me at first, but that works. Anyway. <laughs> um, so favors, you know, things. I'm sure that in like in the beginning, like it I'm sure it just like spiraled out of control and they had given her just so much money at that point that they you know, good for them for finally putting their foot down and saying, you know what, we're not giving you any more money. Um so But also good for them for having that money in the first place because I don't. Oh yeah, you know? they're doing great. You know, this business, I would spend all my money there. The Calico Henhouse, I that right up my alley. Honestly, I was like, I, do they have an internet store? Because I will one hundred percent buy things from there. I don't yeah. think they do. So, um, my bank account feels good there. Um, anyway, so the couple. I, along with all the money they had given her they had also purchased her a gmc envoy for forty six hundred dollars to help her out with her transportation needs and you know again sean had assured them not to worry she's going to pay them back with the divorce money um but so there was a time where i think it might have been around the same time that they were like we're not going to give you money anymore uh david noticed that the car needed some maintenance so he took it to the shop and sean like freaked out when she wasn't able to find the car and she was really uh, like upset 
Um, so I think, you know, combined with the, we're not giving you any money anymore, um, the car missing, um, Sean was like, all right, I, I have to do something about this. Like I, I got to solve this problem. And she decided to do that by taking her son to the Waterloo police department. And she there made an allegation to the police that David had sexually abused her son. What? Yeah. Yeah. So kind of takes a bit of a left turn there. Um, but the the good news is that charges were, were never filed. And um, Sean actually ended up being charged with theft and false reports. Um, so in the end, in total, she had received about $58,000 from David and Terry. Um, lots of money. And yeah. according to her son, uh, Sean hadn't told her son to say anything to the officers. She just made that the allegations on his behalf. He said, I knew I had to keep my story straight so they would believe her. Um, so he told the police that nothing happened, but he did in a later interview tell the child protection center he was interviewed there that david had grazed his groin while they were wrestling um so obviously there was you know a trial and while on the stand the boy said again that david didn't do anything appropriate with him and he did not tell anything to his mother to make her think that something bad had happened so clearly this allegation was purely Sean's doing you know it wasn't that she was had suspicions about something being wrong um you know he he clarified that there was nothing that he did to kind of prompt this um her her son also shared that his mother did have cancer but it was 10 years ago um and it was not true that she currently had brain and breast cancer uh, I would just like to throw in here. I don't think that there is anything that is wrist cancer. I think you can have like melanoma types of cancer on your yeah, yeah. different different other types of cancer on your wrist. Um, again, you know, I wouldn't expect that someone would be, you know, an expert, even if it was a condition that they had. You know, um, it is possible that someone might mistake that or just that's how they say that that's what their cancer is, but it was not in this case um and his her son was aware that his mother was lying uh knew she wasn't going to die because she didn't have the problems that she said she had um so sean's 24 year old daughter i'm not too sure how to pronounce this so it's b-r-e-a-u-n-n-a so it looks like it's maybe spelled brenna but it could also be like brana do you have any <laughs> b-r-e b-r-e-a-u-n-n-a brianna brianna okay yeah uh so brianna wilson she spoke at the trial as well she said her mother had been pretending to be sick the entire time um she told the story of a time that david and terry came to visit sean um this was after sean had claimed that she had got that kidney transplant um, Sean was wrapped in a bandage. She had it wrapped around her waist. She was laying in bed, you know, recovering from surgery. And Brianna said her mother talked to her about um, 
pictures of kidney scars after surgery and she had tried to convince Brianna to draw a kidney scar on her so that she would be able to show that to the rotors. <laughs> Brianna was like, uh, yeah, I'm not doing that. Um, but so what Sean did instead used Brianna's phone to send the pictures to Terry of the kidney scar and claimed that it was her post-surgery scar. But you know, if you just did a quick Google search of kidney mm-hmm. scars, like the photo was one of the first few that popped up. So yeah. clearly it wasn't her scar. She was, you know, scamming a bit there. Is like, it was this like specifically a scam for money or is this like, like Munchausen or factitious? Like what? Just, <laughs> like, you stop I, right there. I'm getting to that. Don't you? Sorry. I just got a couple more thoughts about the trial. We'll get there. Hold on to your horses. Um, But anyway, so you remember the bank document that Sean had showed the Rotors. Yeah, that was fake. That was fake, too. Uh, A video interview was shown to the jury where Sean claimed she had no idea what they were talking about in regards to this document. And, you know, she she never had that $3.2 million bank statement. Uh, She did, however, accidentally show the photo to a Waterloo police officer. So they were like, it's on your phone you're <laughs> not yeah um sean also you know was just making the claims that she never took any money from terry or david um but she did say she accepted money for rent and medications and other things and so um in the video she had said that she didn't take any money from them so the officer was like is she trying to make an argument that she never like took cash for herself um and that maybe it didn't count if it was going straight to her rent and medications in quotation marks Mm -hmm. not really sure um but overall just very inconsistent responses that made her story seem like it wasn't likely um Mm -hmm. so the defense asked terry uh, about the time she gave sean money for medication for her wrist cancer um so this was the time i was talking about earlier where she gave her 500 dollars and then gave her even more money um they thought it was unusual that terry agreed to give sean a thousand dollars after knowing her for only a few days they were like really like you really just gave her a thousand dollars you weren't like weirded out by that at all um but terry said terry said i did i guess that's just my personality i want to help people um so the black hawk county court records say that on november 15th of 2019 sean was convicted of theft and false reports um also side note Sean was also sentenced in June of that year for a theft not related to this current theft trial. She had been charged in Grundy County for taking people to a farm in rural Dyke and selling them items that she said belonged to her. These items included tools, a wood chipper, a John Deere lawn tractor, a Triggs livestock trailer, and a Surrey horse buggy. (laughs) By the way... Our podcast is sponsored today by John Deere, Triggs, and Surrey. For all of your lawn, tractor, livestock, trailer, and horse buggy needs. Um, Um, That's not true. That's a little free advertising. I'm just like like imagining somebody like walking on Deere property and like just selling. Just selling your things. Like, 
I'm just like, how did she, was she just like driving down the road <laughs> and she saw a farm that was like, hey, because it, it, you know, this just seemed to be like an isolated incident. I don't know if it was something that she had done, you know, a couple times and maybe wasn't like caught for it or like, but yeah, just like walking to someone's <laughs> house. <laughs> Like, you have to know that they're, like, not going to be home at the time. Or, like, that stuff, you need to, like, transport it, you know? Like, you're, <laughs> like, a livestock trailer? Those things are big. Like, I yeah. don't know. I, so this is, like, super random. It reminds me, when I was in college, one of my, um, one of my husband's friends, like, whenever he got drunk, he became a klepto. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and, like was stealing like he lived like in a trailer park which a ton of people um at auburn did because it's so cheap um mm-hmm. and he i think he got drunk with the like walk to like s- took someone's grill off of there. <laughs> no like somebody just walking under your property and taking your things it just seems so ridiculous okay i mean we don't know maybe she was drunk and she was selling stuff uh you know maybe that was like her alter ego was like uh um you know like livestock equipment salesman i don't (laughs) know this was just it was weird and it just seemed kind of unrelated to this entire other case but i just thought it was so interesting i had to include it um so she got like a thousand dollars for selling these items which seems like a very great deal to me because these things all sound like they're pretty expensive equipment. Yeah. Um, but after her conviction, she was ordered to pay restitution. So hopefully they got their money back for, for that horse buggy. Um, anyway, so I'm glad that you brought up, oops. I'm glad that you brought up Munchausen syndrome because that's what was going through my head at this time. I was like, you know, I need to know a little bit more about Munchausen. Um, so I went and looked it up, did some very, you know, basic research, and this is what I found online. This is, like, not speaking of nothing to my experience, um, because this mm-hmm. syndrome is, I think, quite rare. Um, yeah. So Munchausen syndrome was very much popularized after the murder of Dee Dee Blanchard, if mm-hmm. you guys... In that case, it was Munchausen by, by proxy, but I think that's something that really brought Munchausen into the, um, you know pop culture kind of media um so it's a factitious disorder where someone will act like they have a physical or mental illness but they aren't actually sick and it's typically associated with having emotional difficulties so it is considered a mental illness and and not um you know a physical although mental is physical yeah you know what i'm saying um Mm -hmm. so the name actually comes from an 18th century german officer baron von munchausen who was known for really embellishing the stories he would tell about his life which seems like a ridiculous explanation to me like oh (laughs) this guy liked to tell stories and like really embellish them and now he has a mental disorder named after him maybe it was like such a common colloquialism that at any time someone lied like stop being such a munchausen still (laughs) it just like eventually evolved oh my gosh it just seems like like an snl skit that they would like make up baron von munchausen it just doesn't sound real to me but anyway um so what does munchausen syndrome look like Well, there are different ways someone might exaggerate physical symptoms. They may just, you know, lie about them altogether, make things up. They may also hurt themselves to make it look like they are having symptoms. Um, 
They may also interfere with medical tests. They may, you know, uh, mess with like a urine sample or a blood sample to make it seem like they have a type of illness. And so those with Munchausen may report having very serious medical conditions, but um, this is often inconsistent with their medical history. Um, they may have, you know, surgery scars. Uh, that's just one thing that you can kind of track um, or have a history of seeking treatment at many different hospitals, different doctor's offices, and uh, they may even go from city to city. So if you were looking at someone's medical records or, you know, if they were offering an explanation and they were just all over the place, that might um that might be a, 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 a symptom of Munchausen. Um, those with Munchausen syndrome may also not want their doctors to talk to their family or friends. Um, so we don't know why someone may develop Munchausen syndrome, but theories suggest that a history of abuse or neglect, um, maybe having frequent illnesses that require hospitalization during childhood, these things could all be contributing factors. So again, they may... You know, not every single person who has gone through abuse, neglect, or, you know, frequent hospitalizations may develop Munchausen, but it, it could be something that, that leads to that. And so, yeah. you know, based off of Sean's story, I'm not too sure that that I would put her or would, you know, suspect this as, as being, I, I think I would want some more information um, because, you know, it didn't seem like she was actually going in and interacting with doctors. We don't get yeah, that as a part of the story. True. So I think that's where that distinction is kind of made in yeah. my mind. That's true. That's a good point. Um, for Munchausen, if anyone hasn't listened, I think it's our second episode, um, which might be a little rough, but I do think it's a good episode where um, I think that was it. Our Angels of Death or whatever um, episode where I think the person I did, Beverly Allett, she definitely displayed Munchausen by proxy. And so if you're interested in hearing what that's like, I think that could be an interesting episode. Yes. No. Wait. No. Beverly Allett? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. So you, you did it then. Um, and this just made me think for the episode after... I did someone, Belle Gibson. I don't know if you remember her. Oh, yes. Who, in the I, Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. She might have, I don't know. She might have had Munchausen, but um, yeah. not an, I don't know. I'd have to think back to it, but those two episodes, I think. But yeah, like mm-hmm. you were saying, a little bit rougher around the edges. And I would certainly love to do, um, revisit Munchausen and go into a deeper dive yeah. on that. Um, although, so even though I did, you know, present some information, um, I did it, you know, very much to show that this, I just don't think quite fits. I think that it was, mm-hmm. we see more of a manipulation and it seemed like Sean was really good at finding people, um, Terry in particular. She could probably just had like a sense or kind of knew, um, that Terry was maybe a little bit more, you know, prone uh, or, like, a little bit... Like, she found someone who was a really caring person and took advantage of that, um, it seems like. So, oh, this also made me think of... um, What's her name? Mary Beth Tinnings. Do you think that would oh. count as... I don't even know if we mentioned Munchausen, but that's just she, making she me... 
like having children and killing getting them. rid of them. Yeah, but if she thought, if she was truly convinced that they, that, see, the, I'll add another one, guys, to your list. Yeah. Uh, go back and listen. I think that's one of our, you know, that might be one of our more popular episodes, mm-hmm. too. The so, Mothers Who Killed Their Children yes. episode. Um, like, with Munchausen, I, the way I guess I try to think about it, or I guess fictitious disorder, is, like, the intention like that led to the faking or the falsifying of the illness and like with Beverly and with um I'd say Mary Beth um, I, I can't think too much about the Bell Gibson one I definitely I could definitely see it more because it was not just about like scamming doctors but like getting a little bit of attention mm-hmm. for themselves because like, I guess they needed it. They needed um, just that kind of concern. Um, or also a little bit in Beverly's case, I think feeling like she is helping in, I don't know, mm-hmm. in some strange way. And so that's why in this case, I'm like, I mean, maybe, but it does sound like the intention was to scam to get money. Right, right. Um, and not necessarily like, a group of people to like dote and love and care mm-hmm. for her um not cool though um yeah right no i i definitely agree with the what were the intentions of, of what she was doing and it seemed like to me her main intention was getting money um and that's not to say that she that wasn't you know a little part of it of you know wanting a little bit of attention um mm-hmm. but to me it just seemed like it and i think you know in the case of munchausen it's completely possible that someone might be doing it for the attention as well as money i think in the case yeah. of uh dd blanchard um that was certainly <laughs> a driving oh, yeah. factor um so but i yeah i just overall am not mm. not thinking that i think it's just more of she was a really manipulative uh yeah person i hear you but yeah so i like kind of fit the category but like not <laughs> not yeah. Okay, so my case um, is about a doctor, and she is Asian, and so her name, I am not, I'm not a native speaker, I believe, um, I believe her name is Chinese, but that's just based off of my limited knowledge of what different like Asian country names kind of look like. Um, So I'm going to say her name one time, but I'm going to use her like quote unquote American name throughout the case. And so I'm doing the case of Xu Ying Zheng um, and she goes by Lisa. So in 2017, I'll say it again, Xu Ying Lisa, joined a general medical practice owned by her husband called Advanced Care AAA Medical Clinic in the Rowland Heights area of Los Angeles, California. Lisa was a licensed physician, um, board certified in internal medicine and practicing osteopathy. 
At the time of Lisa's start at the practice, the patients were primarily Asian and Hispanic people from the local Rolland Heights area, and the majority of whom paid for medical care through their insurance. Patients there to see one of the physicians at the clinic typically only had a wait time of 15 to 30 minutes in the waiting area. And on average, the clinic was only taking in about $600 in cash a day. So, um, you know, in terms of like co-pays or um, anyone who had to pay out of pocket, it was only about $600. In the following years, the medical practice saw changes in several um, key areas. So first, beginning in 2008, the patient population went from being majority local Hispanic and Asian residents to being primarily 20 and 30 something year old white males who were not even from like Los Angeles County. Many of these patients were traveling significant distances to see Dr. Zhang. Um, In addition, most of these new patients were there for pain and anxiety prescription related reasons. Two years later, so about 2010, almost all of the patients seen were paying in cash, and the clinic was now bringing in $2,000 in cash a day. And the wait times for patients increased from 15 to 30 minutes to six hours. Um, There there were at least 20 to 30 patients in the waiting room at a time with even more queued up outside. A visitor described the waiting area looking like a parole office with, quote, drug dealing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the clinics not were, good. Yeah. Um, definitely not what you want a doctor's office to be described as. Uh, the clinic receptionist noted that some of the patients in the waiting area looked like they were actively under the influence or in withdrawal. One patient even overdosed in the waiting room. At one point, the receptionist spoke to Lisa about the state of the patients in the waiting room, particularly pointing out how agitated and anxious many of the patients were. Lisa just told her that they were all druggies who could wait. Oh, no. Yes. What a doctor. (laughs) Um, And so the advanced... Care AAA Medical Clinic had now developed a reputation for being a place that people could easily get prescriptions for opioids, sedatives, muscle relaxers, and other controlled substances. In addition, Lisa was now charging patients an extra $5 to split prescriptions. So do you know what splitting prescriptions means? No, I don't. So basically it's, you know, you have one patient, so you write them a prescription, you write them on two separate prescription forms, the same prescription, but for like different dates. Mm-hmm. And so then the patient can, you know, take one to Walgreens and then one to like a mom and pop like pharmacy on different days and have like double the amount of medication. So this um, doesn't sound like it was a legal thing to do? No, not not legal at okay. all. Okay. Um, especially in the when we're talking about um, controlled substances that are actually monitored by like the state and sometimes federal um, like monitoring systems. Um, yeah, <laughs> so definitely not okay. And so around the time of these changes, Lisa was also only spending about ten to fifteen patient. Sorry, ten to fifteen minutes per new patient, and about five minutes per established patient who like was returning to see her and so in fact on many occasions she would actually see up to three patients at the same time literally in the same exam room oh my goodness Um, so uh, what 
was the quality of the medical care she was giving i don't know but i personally wouldn't be comfortable in an exam room with anyone other than like the nurse and doctor who are there to treat me um and so and most of the time when she was seeing patients even if it was one-on-one she wasn't performing a medical examination for these patients at all um so if a if a patient came in complaining about an old knee injury acting up lisa's first course of action was writing a prescription for opioids a patient with non-specific symptoms of feeling anxious every now and then um underwent no medical evaluation and was promptly given a prescription for xanax Uh, She didn't even take the time to get a full medical history for these patients before signing a prescription. And so... Are you even, like, taking their vitals? Like, (laughs) are you even weighing them? Nothing. She's, like, doing no um, medical, like, anything. Even just, what are you allergic to? What are you already prescribed? You know, just to find out, you know, if... You're, if you're taking a benzo, you probably shouldn't take an opioid, you know? Or, yeah, um, wanting to, you know, just know their basic medical history to see, you know, would it be a more appropriate referral to, you know, refer them to, like, mental health services versus, yeah. like, medical. Like, they're, you know, typically they want to test your thyroid to rule out any, you know, thyroid conditions before and like just monitoring for like, you know, iron levels or just, you know, f- typically they want to make sure that everything is okay medically before making the recommendation to to yeah. psychiatric services. Yeah, and then like also, you know, as I think we both work in healthcare settings and part of what I do is in health services research, like there's also like there's alternatives to like prescriptions especially when we're talking about controlled substances and so in a lot of ways it's kind of crazy that that was like number one like that the first thing that you would consider as opposed to I don't know physical therapy Mm -hmm. (laughs) like or I think typically you would prescribe both at the same time you know you wouldn't just give someone uh, controlled subs. I know. I know this was back. What you said it was 2010. Yeah, 2010. And so, yeah. just in like my in my work right now, I do a lot of um, opioids, opioid things or opioid related things. Um, if, research is the word. Opioid <laughs> research is what I do, not things. I don't do opioids. <laughs> but Good to know. yeah, no, like. There, there's literally a ton of other medications that can treat pain before opioid. The other thing is, as I go through this, um, even if you, even if you're a doctor and like not fully aware of the addictive properties of opioids, which very interesting considering there are like literal like street drugs that are opioids, but whatever. Um, like she ended up seeing patients that were clearly like addicted and would continue to prescribe and so it's still just kind of like you are no, being malicious yeah. at a certain point you're, you know? you're absolutely well right yeah. it'd be unusual you know if a patient came in and you know she was just giving them like diabetes medication because yeah. they uh i don't know asked for it <laughs> Yeah, you know, she didn't do any type of history. She didn't do, mm-hmm. you know, any type of, like, blood test. She was just like, here's diabetes medication. Here you go. See you later, buddy. Like, yeah. um, that would be 
just as bad. Yeah. So. And the other thing is, at this time, um, California had a database that tracked if patients had current um, prescriptions for controlled substances. Um, and that the whole purpose of that is to help combat, like, overprescription and, like, potential overdose if the patient has like two different types of um, controlled substances that are like contraindicated um and a lot of states have that and have had it for a really long time a lot i think most call them a prescription drug monitoring program so the pdmp um and so it's literally there you just type in the patient's name and like so last four or whatever and like it comes up and she just was like i'm not like she didn't look she didn't she didn't Mm -hmm. care Um, In addition, uh, and I think I will say this again later on, is she wasn't even filling out full medical charts for these patients. And so if somebody were to call and be like, hey, I need like I have so and so in an ER right now. I need like a medical like like she had like maybe a sheet of paper with their name and like nothing else. Yeah. Um, So medications they're taking or history or anything. Exactly. And so. In addition to her questionable prescribing practices, Lisa sometimes allowed patients to pick up prescriptions of controlled substances uh, for patients who were not physically present and even wrote prescriptions for patients that she had never met. And so in these cases, it would be like a person coming in to see her and then asking for her to write the prescription under like their son's name or under like an uncle's name or something like that so that they can pick up the prescription at maybe a pharmacy that was like um you have like 17 prescriptions of this thing in the past Mm -hmm. like three months and so she she had no problem she was like yep no problem whatever signed it got her cash um and she was good and so soon after the numerous prescriptions signed by Lisa, by Dr. Sang um, started filling up pharmacies, some pharmacists began refusing to fill them. Lisa's name had begun to serve as an unofficial red flag for, for, speci- for suspicious... Pre- Suspicious prescriptions. <laughs> Say that five times fast. <laughs> um, Lisa's name had begun to serve as an unofficial red flag for suspicious prescribing practices. Um, when she first found out about this, she started referring her patients to smaller mom and pop pharmacies who had no problem filling um, prescriptions for her. And so I think part of why some of these mom and pop pharmacies would do it um and this is me speculating is um being a smaller pharmacy needing more business a little bit but then Mm -hmm. also um it's very likely you know not that they didn't necessarily have the same like widely connected like system that a large pharmacy like a walgreens would have um or a hospital pharmacy or anything like that um And so following the deaths of several patients for whom Lisa had prescribed controlled substances, law enforcement and the coroner's office began asking questions. Once law enforcement started investigating, Lisa started making changes to patients' electronic medical records in the hopes that she could protect herself. In the meantime, she continued to inappropriately prescribe opioids, sedatives, amphetamines, and muscle relaxers. By 2010, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency, um, so the DEA, and the California Department of Justice, 
the DOJ, um, both began their own investigations into Lisa. A DEA search warrant was issued and agents seized computers and made digital copies of the medical practices, patient health records and computer files. Two years later, the California Medical Board also executed a search warrant on the clinic taking patient records. This investigation showed that between 2007 and 2008, the medical clinic grossed $5 million in cash. Oh my gosh. Yeah, which is wow for a small clinic like that in a strip mall. Um, Just wow. And so four years after Lisa's reckless prescribing practices began, she was arrested in July 2012 and charged with 20 counts of unlawfully prescribing controlled substances to patients and one count of obtaining a controlled substance by fraud. In addition, she was charged with three counts of second-degree murder for three patients who died from overdoses or other adverse drug events related to, like, prescriptions that Lisa had um, signed for them. And so I'm going to kind of go into these murders. Um, The first murder Lisa was charged with was for the death of... And I didn't look up how to say this, but I assume it's it's a Vietnamese name. So Vu Nguyen, Nguyen. I, I never know how to say that last name. N-G-U-Y-E-N. And I apologize. Um, at the time of the fatal prescription, Vu was 28 years old and Lisa prescribed him a 90 day supply of Xanax. Sorry, he she, she Lisa prescribed him several 90-day supplies, one of Xanax, a sedative, one for Norco, an opiate, and and Opana, another opiate. And so all three had 90-day supplies, so 90 tablets each. Prior to these final prescriptions, Lisa had previously prescribed him on multiple occasions, Opana, Norco, Vicodin, Xanax, and Adderall, each more than one, each on more than one occasion, and each were a 90-day supply. According to Vu's family, they weren't aware of any medical reason that Vu needed any of the prescriptions, nor did Lisa ever obtain an adequate medical history to justify the need for him to be prescribed any of these medications. I think it's especially weird that he would be prescribed three different brands of opioids um, and then his final prescription being two different ba- brands of opioids. Mm-hmm. Um, very strange. Um, for reference on exactly how addictive opioids are, um, this is like one of my talking points in research, um, research has actually shown that if an opioid naive patient goes into an emergency department or anywhere and and is prescribed opioids, it literally only takes a three day supply, um, to significantly increase the likelihood that the patient will still be on opioids in a year. And so opioids are like oh insanely gosh. addictive. Um, so yeah, like definitely shouldn't be the first line of defense. Um, and so unfortunately, Vu died from a fatal combination of Xanax and Opana or Opana. Um, and records uncovered in the investigation showed that Lisa had never even developed a treatment plan for him, um, or nor did she ever provide him like alternative treatment options to controlled substances, which again, like a doctor should at least tell you like what your options are. And usually there's at least a couple mm-hmm. options. Um, 
And so, unfortunate. Um, this is just making me think of, okay, remember when I got my wisdom teeth removed? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, I, what medication did they have me on? Was it hydrocodone? Hydrocodone. Yeah. Yeah. So, back, that was what? That was 2017, I want to say, that I got my wisdom teeth removed. Yeah, I think um, so. And I they were very strict about the amount of medication they gave me i'm pretty sure they only gave me like 10 pills which um and i like very much rationed them out um and i was still like in so much pain but they like would not write me another prescription until i went i had to go into the office and have them like re-examine my mouth and on the one hand i'm like very much excited that they they like i think they like sent me home with like a packet talking about like the addictive properties of um medications and like you know we're very much although at the time i was very much in pain and Mm -hmm. i was suffering greatly i don't know if you remember oh my god when i got my wisdom teeth out it just hurt for like months and like i was like crying every single day i think i just went back to work like way too soon Mm -hmm. um but before when i got kidney stones that was back in 20 2011, I want to say, was when I got kidney stones. Nope. No, 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 no. 20, 2011. 2015? Were you, were you in college? Yes, I was in college. I'm screwing okay, up 2011 and 2015. 2015. It was 2015. Yeah. Um, I remember it was like before I graduated college. Um, they gave me a lot of hydrocodone for that. Mm-hmm which was much needed. But I very I think I'm very fortunate in that my biological response I cuz people have different biological responses to to pain medication and I think that's like a big driver. You know, it makes some people vomit. Um mm-hmm. and they're like this is very unpleasant whereas like when I take it I just go to sleep um and like it it does help with my pain. Um yeah. but then for some people there's obviously a much different biological response that can make you more susceptible to um addiction so that's just my personal little antidote about antidote antidote about pain medication (laughs) yeah antidote i don't know what words are i probably just have been saying it wrong my whole life and didn't ever think too hard about it (laughs) like you say water (laughs) water don't judge me yeah, I think it is very much the responsibility of either the, the doctor or if there's like a nurse practitioner, any anyone who's a prescriber. I think mm-hmm. it is the responsibility of them um, to really educate the patient on like what this can do to their body and how it actually works in their brain um, so that people can make an informed decision. Because I think once you really know how it works, um, mm-hmm. you might not want to. Um And I also think that as doctors and medical providers, there is a little bit of a responsibility, especially for your primary care physician um, or an internal medicine physician. I think it's a lot harder for emergency department physicians or urgent care physicians to do this. Um, But like uh, being able to like identify like those drug seeking behaviors, um, I think is important particularly if you're seeing repeat patients. Um, Well, too, I think um, it's the responsibility, and this is where ethical things probably come into play, of, Mm -hmm. um, you know, insurances may not cover as much for alternative uh, things, like uh, physical therapy might be more expensive than providing Mm -hmm. opioids. So I think 
um, that's something that has played a role where, you know, if a patient, if their physical therapy isn't covered by their insurance, what their opioids are, um, then, you know, they don't really have a choice. So I think it's important for us to be funding research into alternative pain uh, reduction um, Mm -hmm. or like pain management options, as well as for insurances to cover those other um, pain management options. And, you know, going back to this case in particular, like, she knew what she was doing. Like, these patients were all paying in cash. They knew their insurance wasn't going to cover it. So, ma'am, you were being sketchy. Not okay. Yes, I Uh, think we're, like, talking about the medical field very much as a whole and, like, thinking about the system. But this person, like, knew they were doing something wrong and they continued to do the very wrong thing. Yeah. And so the next murder charge was for the wrongful death of Stephen Ogle, O-G-L-E. Um, on several occasions, Lisa had prescribed him OxyContin and Xanax. Um, all prescriptions were for 100 tablets. On more than one occasion, uh, Stephen reported to the medical office after finishing a 100-tablet prescription in only two weeks. And she simply wrote him new prescriptions. Oh, my um, gosh. Yeah, imagine somebody taking 100 pills in, two, in 14 days. And the other alternative to that is he's sharing his medication with other people and or selling it, um, which just is bad. Um, and so Stephen was found by his mother deceased. Mm-hmm. And he had two prescription bottles next to his body, both of which were filled just two days earlier. One was a prescription for 100 tablets of methadone. And that one only had seven tablets left. So in two days, 93 pills have either been ingested by him or some like shared. And the other prescription was a 100 tablet um, prescription of Xanax. And that one only had 15 and a half pills left. So again, just really showing how... um, possibly how dependent this person was unfortunately and i feel like the red flags were there for lisa if she wanted to you know help this patient Mm -hmm. um or you know try to stop it or not contribute to it further she could have um and so the final murder charge was for the death of 21 year old joseph rivero Lisa saw Joseph only one time, and he complained of wrist pain, back pain, and anxiety. Once more, she didn't do a thorough inve- uh, evaluation of his symptoms, but he did tell her that up until then, he was regularly taking high doses of OxyContin, um, Xanax, and Soma. And Soma is a muscle relaxer, and so he was doing that every day. And I think it was something like six pills of each a day and so that's a lot that is a lot um yeah and for reference looking at my prescription it was like take one every six hours and Mm so you know that's not a lot or that's a lot (laughs) um already so lisa decided to prescribe him roxycodone and opiate soma and xanax nine days later joseph was dead of an overdose Um, He had combined, I think, Xanax with alcohol. And so, you know, even there, possibly giving the patient education on, you know, 
Right. Did she even ask him about alcohol use or educate Um, him that you can't do both? Yeah. And to some degree, obviously, patients, people are going to do what they're going to do. But, you know, you don't have to, like, put the bullets in the gun, you know, for them. And so I feel like that is I feel like Lisa was being very reckless and very irresponsible. And so, in addition to the deaths that Lisa was charged for, Lisa's prescriptions were also linked to, to the drug overdose deaths of Michael Stavron, Ryan Latham, Nathan Keeney, Joshua Chambers, and Joseph Gomez, and Michael Cat Nelson. Lisa was aware of some of these overdoses before she began treating um before she began treating any of the three patients that she was charged for whose deaths she was charged for um or charged with um until she like it presumably it didn't look like she cared all that much because she just continued to like recklessly and dangerously prescribe these medications that had already killed patients and she was already aware of it um and again she was continuing to do this after she knew that the drug enforcement agency the dea the medical office or the medical board were all investigating her and so I, I I can't even understand it. It was like there was at least it seems like not even any preser- like self-preservation instinct mm-hmm. on her part. Um, and so at her trial, Lisa's defense was that she was an overworked mother with two kids and she had her own unresolved mental health issues. I believe it was I believe that her counsel or defense attorney um, said that she had undiagnosed hoarding disorder um and on and um undiagnosed depression and so all of those things helped to contribute to her reckless opioid prescribing or sorry controlled substance prescribing um her lawyer also argued that she simply naively trusted her patients when they reported their problems to her um and again i mean fine i guess that's a defense but also it's still your job as the person who went to medical school to provide adequate i'm not even saying great adequate and appropriate medical care and Mm -hmm. i don't think that she like i don't think that she wanted to do that i don't don't think she even tried to do that um and so in 2015 a jury found lisa guilty of all three counts of second degree murder 19 counts of unlawfully prescribing controlled substances and one count of of obtaining a controlled substance by fraud and in 2016 she was sentenced to 30 years to life in prison lisa has filed appeals uh to which the california supreme court has determined that they will not revisit her case so that is the unfortunate story uh or i guess the unfortunate case of um a doctor like you know not really doing their job and leading to the deaths of many people and probably contributing to the continued um Mm -hmm. i guess addiction of other patients have you seen the pharmacist on netflix no no i saw like the little preview thing um but no, oh I you should watch watched. it if you if you enjoyed this wonderful <laughs> tale um not necessarily enjoyed it but it, it very much i'm you know kind of glad um so the doctor in that case was um a female as well um and it it basically is like the same exact story i feel like um but it's from the 
a father, um, his son is killed. I don't believe he overdosed, but he was killed um, in relation to like selling drugs or something. Um, mm-hmm. So then he ends up going after the um, doctor who was doing the prescribing. And um, it's just, it sounds like exactly the same yeah. where, um, you know, there were a, like a certain type of patient that, and like people would be very much under the influence in the waiting room. Um, so it's just, you know, I don't think that this is the only person that did this in the medical no, field. Sure. Unfortunately, there, there were a are- lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there have been other doctors that have been, like, convicted of, like, overprescribing of opioids, recklessly prescribing of opioids. And even in my work, we've had conversations about whether or not that sets a dangerous precedent to start convicting doctors. But at Mm -hmm. the same time, if these doctors were providing, like, bad medical care, like, not using good judgment Mm -hmm. and it led to the death of a patient in any other context you know if you're like a surgeon and you're actively choosing to do something that's wrong that causes your patient to die on the table you would like face possibly civil and legal like ramifications and so um it's like a little bit of like what what do we do how do we do it um but Yes. Yeah. Well, it becomes very tricky when you talk about, um, you know, criminalizing things that that doctors have done because, um, you know, there are many situations, obviously, where the doctor, um, you know, what their recommendation is leads to the death of a patient or there is, you know, mistakes that do happen within the the medical field. And we don't want, you know... um, that's just the nature of existence is that people do make mistakes um, or, you know, perhaps like a, a different treatment option would have had a different outcome. And we don't want to um, put a doctor in jail anytime that happens because then we wouldn't have any doctors. Um, so but it is. But in some cases, for sure, like this case and there's others yes, there's, that are so clear or doctors like getting a kickback from the pharmaceutical mm-hmm. pharmaceutical company, which I feel like should be illegal. The same way I think, like, our elected officials should not be taking thousands and thousands of dollars from corporations, because how can we trust your judgment? Have you Um, seen, there are commercials now for, um, like, birth control and things that celebrities are now endorsing pharmaceuticals. Really? Yeah, like, Vanessa Hudgens is, like, a spokesperson for, like, Nexplanon or something. And I'm like, I feel like I didn't see that before, where yeah. celebrities were literally the spokesperson. And I think, um, like, some are, like, the spokesperson for, like, migraine medications or things. And I'm like, come on. This is just ridiculous. We should not yeah. be allowed to advertise for pharmaceuticals at all, much less yeah. have celebrities endorse them. Endorse that is just, them. like... I 100% agree. And, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure in, like, most other countries, they don't have like commercials for like no, it's not all of these drugs like it, i'm like this is a medical decision between you and your doctor like no like this commercial should not have any influence on what you decide to do right medically. well and that's where you know obviously doctors are not customer service they are customer service focused but they shouldn't 
have to be obviously like doctors should be held to a certain standard you can't just be like a total jerk to your patient and you know get away with it but at the same time their business is hurt when people uh complain about certain things and if you see a commercial on tv and you go in and demand that medication from your doctor and they say this isn't appropriate for you and you go leave them a bad review um that might hurt their business so it's like a uncomfortable balance of wanting to help your patients but also needing to you know make sure that your reviews are good or like that people will continue to come back and see you a lot of um a lot of doctors um do get performance pay so in addition Mm -hmm. to the regular salary especially if you're working for like a like a medical center um, you get performance pay, and that's often based on your performance ratings. And so, yeah, patient. There are times patients are like angry, and you know they didn't get what they wanted, and whatever. And so that does contribute to doctors not getting those good rank ra- ratings. But I mean, the system I think needs to change in that regard mm-hmm. um, as well. Um, but you know, in addition to like getting bad reviews or bad ratings, you know what else is bad for business? Dead patients. Yeah. So. <laughs> fair, fair enough. You don't want that. Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.